0: You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on July 22nd, 2018. A reading from the book of Isaiah. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So when I was in college, I decided that I wanted to, uh, to take on exercising. Exercising wasn't something I had done much of. And I kind of thought the sport of, of triathlon was kind of fun because it wasn't just one sport. You wouldn't just get bored with, with one thing. You had some variety. You could do uh, running and cycling and swimming. So you get three, and all of them come together. I thought that would be cool. There was just one problem. Well, two problems. First of all, I had never really exercised before. And second, I didn't have a bicycle. But Nonetheless, I thought well, I'll just do what I can do then I'm going to run in front of my house on the street and I'm going to swim in the college swimming pool and between those two things uh, I'll I'll get started and then maybe I'll pick up a bike along the way somewhere Uh, And so I got started and after a couple days. I decided that was kind of boring. I needed something to train for so I needed a goal something I could work towards and so I started looking on the internet for races that were coming up sometime soon, and I found one. It was the Indianapolis Marathon and Half Marathon, only a, couple, uh, only a couple hours away. It was close enough because I was in college in Ohio, and I decided to go for it. There was just one more problem. It was only 30 days away. And so I trained in earnest for that, I set up a schedule, I stuck to my schedule, and I ended up running in that marathon, and uh, I did okay, but I don't recommend it because later I injured myself because I trained too quickly, and I'm not really a runner today. So uh, the moral of that story is uh, don't start too quickly, just take your time. But as I got to the marathon, and this is what I want you to remember today, as I got to the marathon, I was in the midst of all these people. All these other runners who had been training probably longer than I had. They were all ready for this race. They were excited. And then the, the start happened. I don't know if they shot a pistol or what they did. But the start happened. And then all of these people, hundreds of people, were moving down the same road in the same direction. There was a sense of camaraderie, the sense of movement, the sense of going somewhere, the sense of being a part of something. That was pretty remarkable. And this is a a little glimpse of what I'm reminded of as I read through our passage from Isaiah today. When we look at Isaiah, we see him speak these words. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Now Isaiah, as with a lot of the prophets, uh, spoke one word and it it often had different meanings through different generations but he was also unique in that as he prophesied before the exile he was speaking to three different groups of people he was speaking first of all words of god's judgment to the people in israel at that time second of all uh, he was preaching that that they would be sent away to babylon and so he was speaking to the people as they were being exiled And then third of all, he was speaking into the future to the time of restoration, something Isaiah himself didn't get to see. But he was speaking into the future saying that after 70 years, God would bring this people back. And today's prophecy is a part of that third category. He's starting to point the way back home for God's people who had been exiled, sent away from their homeland for more than 70 years or about 70 years, uh, and then they get to come back. And so when Isaiah speaks these words, build up build up. He's talking about building up the road. Prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. What he's saying is that God is going to make his way clear. That he's going to take away everything that would obstruct his people's return back to their home. That the the path is going to be laid before them so it's very clear which way to go. You don't need to turn to the left or to the right because the the way is set before you. God is going to restore and rebuild his people. So looking back, we can see the partial fulfillment of this prophecy in the way that Ezra and Nehemiah and others did get to come back home after that 70 years were completed. We see, uh, first of all, a group of of Israelites uh, being sent back from King Cyrus, back to their homeland, and then some of them return and they share reports of what they found. Because when the exile happened, Jerusalem was laid waste. No stone was left upon another stone. It was utterly destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The city was completely ransacked. And it was in terrible shape. And so Nehemiah hears about this. He hears this report from people who had gone to visit their homeland and come back. And he becomes very sad. Very sad, yes. It's ominous. Thunder. Uh, so he becomes very sad. And uh, Nehemiah had this really important job. He was the cupbearer the cupbearer, and the cupbearer's job was to take the king's cup of wine and taste it and then give it to the king. Now, why would the king want someone else to drink his wine? Poison. Because of poison. They were checking for poison. So this was a, a, a measure to guard against killing the king. And so Nehemiah's job was to drink the cup and see if it was poison and then pass it on to the king. And to do that, you had to be a pretty trusted person in the king's household. And so when Nehemiah comes to the king on this particular day, he had always had a a joyful disposition in the past. The king looks on his face, and it's sad. And the king says, Nehemiah, I have never seen you sad before. What's going on? He said, well, I've I've heard about my homeland, how it's utterly destroyed, how it's in terrible shape, and I'm grieving for the place where my fathers are buried. And the king says, well, how much time do you need? What? How much... Oh, you can go back home. You can rebuild the city. How much time do you need? And he realizes that God's favor is upon him in that moment. And so he doesn't think twice. He goes, well, um, yeah, I need some time. And could you also fund the project? Could you just give me all the resources I need so that we can rebuild? And the king says, oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Take all the time you need. Take all the resources you need. Go ahead and rebuild your city. Now, how often does something like that happen? that's pretty remarkable i think you'd all probably agree and that's the way that god showed his favor to his people as he was restoring them he was removing every obstacle from their way he was making the path clear he was sending his people back home so this passage has a lot to say about those who will be restored those who will return home those who will come back and reoccupy palestine but it also has a lot to say about those who will not be restored and to really fully understand those who will be restored we have to first understand who will not be restored and what it says at the end of of this chapter verse 21 is that there is no peace says my god for the wicked there is no peace for the wicked so what differentiates the wicked from those who will be restored At first, we'd probably say, well, it's probably the sin of the wicked, because wicked people are people who sin. So the wicked are probably those who are sinners, and those who are restored are probably those who are righteous. And you're half right if you think that. But we must remember that even those who will be restored were sent away and exiled because of their sin. So nobody is perfect in this situation. The wicked and those who will be restored, all of them are sinners. All of them have fallen away from God. All of them have fallen into bad stuff. So what's the difference between them? Isaiah 57, 17 says, Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and I was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And I think that describes us just as much as it describes God's people thousands of years ago because we're all backsliders. We all fall into sin. We all return to the things that we know we shouldn't do. We all fall away from God and our hearts are turned from him. And so who will find that restoration? Who will find that hope? And who will be like the wicked for whom there is no peace, as the Lord says. So both those who are restored and those who are wicked, both of them are sinners both of them are sinners. So what differentiates the two? Well, to answer that question, let's look at two kings of Israel. First of all, King Saul, and second of all, his successor, King David. King Saul was the first one to be appointed as king over Israel, but King Saul messed up. The Lord had specifically commanded him not to do something, and he went ahead and did it anyway in his zeal. And from that moment, The Lord said that his kingdom, his reign was over and that another person would be put in his place. And very quickly after that, David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king over Israel. And then for a period of years, David is on the run from Saul. But David has been appointed as the next ruler. Saul's kingdom had come to an end. His reign had come to an end. Now compare that with David. David was a man described as a man after God's own heart, and yet he was a murderer and an adulterer. What's different between these two guys? Both of them were pretty evil. Both of them did some pretty bad stuff. What separates Saul from David? Why did Saul have his kingdom come to an end while David was able to sit on the throne and continue to reign? The difference is in their response to their sin and their response to god's judgment when david's sin is found out he immediately repents and what we see in psalm 51 is the psalm that he wrote the song that he wrote uh, as a song of repentance asking god to restore him after this sin and he starts it by saying have mercy on me O god according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David sincerely desires to be restored to God. He knows that what he did was wrong and he's sorry about it. And then in verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the difference between Saul and David. Saul didn't repent. Saul was not contrite, and David did the opposite. He fell on God's mercy, he wept before God, he was truly sorry, he was contrite, he had a broken spirit, and God restored him. And this is the difference between the people who would be restored and those who are described as the wicked in Isaiah. Those who will be restored are those who are contrite, and the wicked are those who are hard of heart contrition is a form of interior repentance it is sorrow of heart and detestation of sin committed with the purpose of not sinning in the future now we all know that we're going to sin again in the future and sometimes it feels a little silly as we kneel during church and we confess our sins knowing that we will most likely sin again but it's not silly because each time we sin god is willing to restore us But the intention of our heart as we confess our sin needs to be an intention not to sin anymore even though we probably will the intention of our heart needs to be contrite it needs to be that we won't sin anymore so this word contrition comes from a latin word contritio, which means a wearing away of something hard a wearing away of something hard and this reminds me of another prophecy in this old testament that talks about god taking our hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh, a wearing away of something hard. Because our hearts are hardened towards God in their natural state. But God lifts us out of that hardness. He softens our hearts. He turns them into hearts of flesh. And he allows us to be restored to him. In my own life, I remember uh, my life before I came to a mature faith in Christ, and I was not a very nice person I was nice outside of my family but inside of my family I was horrible to my younger brother I was disobedient and surly and rude to my parents I did not treat them with respect and I look back on those years with shame and my parents look back on those years with fear and trembling because they were not pleasant for anybody in our household I was not a nice person to be around But when God came into my life, when God changed my heart, when God helped me to come to a mature faith in him, I realized what I was doing. I realized the strain that I was putting on all of those relationships. And I became very sorry for what I had done. And God put contrition inside of me. God put repentance inside of me. And I had a desire to restore those relationships. Not that those relationships were perfect after that, But I do have a wonderful relationship with my parents and with my younger brother to this day. And I'm very thankful for that. God changes hearts. He's changed my heart. And he loves to change your hearts as well. And this isn't necessarily a one-time thing. This is something we come back to him over and over again with him. Because we continue to sin and we continue to need to repent. But as you all know, there's a big difference between saying, I'm sorry... And truly being sorry. If you've ever watched uh, kids who have been forced to make up with each other, there's that that uh, that that required. I'm sorry, but you can tell it, it's not meant. It's not genuine, and you can really see a difference when a child really comes to understand what they've done, how they've hurt someone else, and how they've become truly sorry in their hearts for what they've done. That's the difference between an outward uh, lip service to repentance and an inward orientation of our heart towards contrition. That's how God changes us. It's a a big difference. And this is the same thing that we see in our passage from Isaiah. The wicked are those who are prideful, and those who have turned to gods of their own making for salvation. Just one verse before our passage today, uh, it says this in verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So God is saying here, if you want to make up gods, go right ahead. Turn to those gods. See if they're going to save you. But I tell you, if you put your trust in those idols, they're all going to fall down. They're all going to blow away. The second you need to count on them, they're not going to be there for you. But I, the Lord, am there for you, because I love you, because I care for you. That's what God says to us. And so when we put our trust in idols, we're putting our trust in a false hope. But when we put our trust in God, that hope is rock solid, because God is trustworthy and we can rely on him. And so if we want to be among those who are restored, put our trust there. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land, says the Lord. And so those who will be restored are those who are contrite. Those who realize their sin, who sincerely repent, and who return to the Lord. So how do we humble ourselves? How do we become contrite? How do we turn to God and change our hearts? The Lord will do it. It's a work that God does in our lives and in our hearts. When we look at verses 18 and 19, it says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God knows the sin that's in your hearts. God sees beyond the masks that we put up, the the pretty picture that we point towards the outside world that says we're doing okay and we're, we're, we're not sinners. There's nothing to see here. We put these masks on when we know inside of our hearts there's all kinds of ugliness and anger and malice and hatred and rudeness. We know that's in there. And to let you in on a little secret, God knows what's in there too. God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him to comfort. uh, I will restore comfort to him and to his mourners creating the fruit of lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. It is the Lord who heals us. It is the Lord who changes our hearts. It is the Lord who softens our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh, that we might love him freely, even as we're incapable of doing so without him. Now, I said earlier that this return from the exile was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy, In our lessons from Ephesians today, we hear of a further fulfillment of this prophecy. We talked about different layers of meaning on prophecy. And often, when we see something in the Old Testament, there's an immediate meaning in the Old Testament context. There's a further meaning when Christ comes into the picture. And there's an ultimate meaning meaning which points towards Jesus' second coming and the restoration of all things. And we can see that here as well. And so when we look at our passage from Ephesians today, what we're seeing is that intermediary uh, meaning that comes with the fulfillment of Christ. So now listen to these words from Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, That he might create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father now what was going on here For centuries there had been this divide between Gentiles and Jews. The Jews were God's special people, chosen by God in Abraham and his descendants to be a special people called out to follow God. And the Gentiles, which means the nations, the Gentiles were everybody else. And God had set up these commandments and rules for uh, for the Jews to know what was righteous and what was not, but also to keep them separate from the Gentiles. They weren't supposed to marry the Gentiles. They were supposed to have different eating habits from the Gentiles. They couldn't eat bacon, and the Gentiles could eat bacon. They couldn't eat ham, and the Gentiles could eat ham. They also had, uh, had social customs that separated them from, from the Gentiles. And then, when we fast forward to the time of Christ, the Gentiles had occupied Palestine. And so even though they had been restored to their own land after the exile, they were still an occupied nation. They lived in Palestine, but the Romans ruled them. They had a Roman governor. They had Roman soldiers walking over their streets. And so there was hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. But then Jesus comes. He dies. He's resurrected. The day of Pentecost comes. And they start preaching Christ and his resurrection everybody and on that day 3,000 people were baptized most of them jews but then slowly something else happens as well peter and paul and others start coming in contact with gentiles and the gentiles start to believe in jesus too and then all of a sudden there's this crisis because there are jews and gentiles both of them believing in christ and they have to put a council together in jerusalem just to deal with this question And the Jews are saying, well, the the Gentiles, they should keep all the same rules and commandments that we have. They should be circumcised. They should have food customs. They should become like us. And what the council determined by the will of God and the Holy Spirit working through them is that no, because those external things aren't the things that make us God's people anymore. What matters is that Christ has entered into us and has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. And so when we're listening to Paul in Ephesians, what he's talking about is the reality that God has made one people out of two. Where formerly there were Jews and Gentiles, now there's just one people, people who are in Christ. And God is knocking down all of the walls of hostility between us. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Just like the kids in that example were were far away from each other because of sin and far away from God, Jesus is breaking down those walls of hostility and bringing them back together. But he's also restoring our relationship with him by the blood of the cross. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility between God and man And the hostility between man and man, all of it is being broken down by Jesus because of what he's done for us by his blood on the cross. And now note the connection between this passage and Isaiah. Here it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. And if we turn back to Isaiah, it says... Peace, peace, to the far off and to the near, says the Lord, and I will hear them, heal them. Paul is recognizing that what was prophesied by Isaiah so many years ago and was partially fulfilled as the people came back to the land of Palestine was now coming into a new, fulfill, new fullness, that God was welcoming Gentiles into the community of faith, into his body, the church, and that there were no longer divides between Jew and Gentile, but he was making one people, and restoring also their relationship to God. And the same promise is held out to us today. That we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And God's desire is to restore us. And there's not a single one of us here without sin. But I'm here to tell you that regardless of how great you think your sin is, that God's mercy is greater. No matter how big you think your sin is, God's mercy is bigger. And so we hear it said For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is big. He inhabits eternity, but he also inhabits the heart of the one who is contrite. God descends down to us. He puts himself on our level so that he might rise us up to his level. God's mercy is great. God's love is big. And in him, our sin melts away. Our hearts turn from stone to flesh. And we are restored to him. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so big. We thank you that you are so good. We thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. And we pray, Lord, that you would melt away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. That you would help us to be truly contrite. That you would help us to see your mercy and see our sin and give it over to you. Remove the walls of hostility that separate us from one another and separate us from you. Restore us and revive us, O Lord. Show us the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.